Chapter 8 of McTeague. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. McTeague by Frank Norris. Chapter 8. The next two months were delightful. Trina and McTeague saw each other regularly, three times a week. The dentist went over to B Street Sunday and Wednesday afternoons as usual, but on Fridays it was Trina who came to the city. She spent the morning between nine and twelve o'clock downtown, for the most part in the cheap department stores, doing the weekly shopping for herself and the family. At noon she took an uptown car and met McTeague at the corner of Polk Street. The two lunched together at a small uptown hotel just around the corner on Sutter Street. They were given a little room to themselves. Nothing could have been more delicious. They had but to close the sliding door to shut themselves off from the whole world. Trina would arrive breathless from her raids upon the bargain counters, her pale cheeks flushed, her hair blown about her face and into the corners of her lips, her mother's net reticule stuffed to bursting. Once in their tiny private room, she would drop into her chair with a little groan. "'Oh, Mac, I am so tired. I've just been all over town.' Oh, it's good to sit down. Just think. I had to stand up in the car all the way, after being on my feet the whole blessed morning. Look here what I've bought. Just things and things. Look, there's some dotted veiling I got for myself. See now, do you think it looks pretty? She spread it over her face. And I got a box of writing paper, and a roll of crepe paper to make a lampshade for the front parlor. And what do you suppose? I saw a pair of Nottingham lace curtains for forty-nine cents, isn't that cheap? And some chenille portiers for two and a half. Now what have you been doing since I last saw you? Did Mr. Hyes finally get up enough courage to have his tooth pulled yet? Trina took off her hat and veil and rearranged her hair before the looking-glass. No, no, not yet. I went down to the sign-painters yesterday afternoon to see about that big gold tooth for a sign. It costs too much. I can't get it yet a while. There's two kinds, one German gilt and the other French gilt, but the German gilt is no good. McTeague sighed and wagged his head. Even Trina and the five thousand dollars could not make him forget this one unsatisfied longing. At other times they would talk at length over their plans, while Trina sipped her chocolate and McTeague devoured huge chunks of butterless bread. They were to be married at the end of May, and the dentist already had his eye on a couple of rooms, part of the suite of a bankrupt photographer. They were situated in the flat, just back of his parlors, and he believed the photographer would sublet them furnished. McTeague and Trina had no apprehensions as to their finances. They could be sure, in fact, of a tidy little income. The dentist's practice was fairly good, and they could count upon the interest of Trina's $5,000. To McTeague's mind, this interest seemed woefully small. He had had uncertain ideas about that $5,000, had imagined that they would spend it in some lavish fashion, would buy a house, perhaps, or would furnish their new rooms with overwhelming luxury, luxury that implied red velvet carpets and continued feasting. The old-time miner's idea of wealth, easily gained and quickly spent, persisted in his mind. But when Trina had begun to talk of investments and interests and percents, he was troubled and not a little disappointed. The lump sum of $5,000 was one thing. A miserable little 20 or 25 a month was quite another, and then someone else had the money. "'But don't you see, Mac,' explained Trina, "'it's ours just the same. We could get it back whenever we wanted it, and then it's the reasonable way to do. 
We mustn't let it turn our heads, Mac, dear, like that man that spent all he won in buying more tickets. How foolish we'd feel after we'd spent it all. We ought to go on just the same as before, as if we hadn't won. We must be sensible about it, mustn't we? Well, well, I guess perhaps that's right, the dentist would answer, looking slowly about on the floor. Just what should ultimately be done with the money was the subject of endless discussion in the SEPA family. The savings bank would allow only three percent, but Trina's parents believed that something better could be got. There's Uncle Oberman, Trina had suggested, remembering the rich relative who had the wholesale toy store in the mission. Mr. Sipa struck his hand to his forehead. Ah, an idea, he cried. In the end, an agreement was made. The money was invested in Mr. Oberman's business. He gave Trina six percent. Invested in this fashion, Trina's winning would bring in twenty-five dollars a month, but besides this, Trina had her own little trade. She made Noah's Ark animals for Uncle Oberman's store. Trina's ancestors on both sides were German-Swiss, and some long-forgotten forefather of the 16th century, some worsted leggined woodcarver of the Tyrol, had handed down the talent of the national industry to reappear in this strangely distorted guise. She made Noah's Ark animals, whittling them out of a block of soft wood with a sharp jackknife, the only instrument she used. Trina was very proud to explain her work to McTeague, as he had already explained his own to her. "'You see, I take a block of straight-grained pine and cut out the shape, roughly at first, with the big blade. Then I go over it a second time with the little blade, more carefully. Then I put in the ears and tail with a drop of glue, and paint it with a non-poisonous paint, Vandyke brown for the horses, foxes, and cows, slate gray for the elephants and camels, burnt umber for the chickens, zebras, and so on.' Then last, a dot of Chinese white for the eyes, and there you are, all finished. They sell for nine cents a dozen. Only I can't make the mannequins. The mannequins? The little figures, you know. Noah and his wife, and Shem, and all the others. It was true. Trina could not whittle them fast enough and cheap enough to compete with a turning lathe that could throw off whole tribes and peoples of mannequins while she was fashioning one family— Everything else, however, she made, the ark itself, all windows and no door, the box in which the hole was packed, even down to pasting on the label, which read, Made in France. She earned from three to four dollars a week. The income from these three sources, McTeague's profession, the interest of the five thousand dollars, and Trina's whittling, made a respectable little sum taken altogether. Trina declared they could even lay by something, adding to the five thousand dollars little by little. It soon became apparent that Trina would be an extraordinarily good housekeeper. Economy was her strong point. A good deal of peasant blood still ran undiluted in her veins, and she had all the instinct of a hardy and penurious mountain race, the instinct which saves without any thought, without idea of consequence, saving for the sake of saving, hoarding without knowing why. Even McTeague did not know how closely Trina held to her new-found wealth, but they did not always pass their luncheon hour in this discussion of incomes and economies. As the dentist came to know his little woman better, she grew to be more and more of a puzzle and a joy to him. She would suddenly interrupt a grave discourse upon the rents of rooms and the cost of light and fuel with a brusque outburst of affection and set him all a-tremble with delight. All at once she would set down her chocolate and, leaning across the narrow table, would exclaim, "'Never mind all that.' "'Oh, Mac, do you truly, really love me, love me big?' McTeague would stammer something, gasping and wagging his head beside himself for the lack of words. 
Old bear, Trina would answer, grasping him by both huge ears and swaying his head from side to side. Kiss me, then. Tell me, Mac, did you think any less of me that first time I let you kiss me there in the station? Oh, Mac, dear, what a funny nose you've got, all full of hairs inside. And, Mac, do you know you've got a bald spot? She dragged his head down towards her, right on top of your head. Then she would seriously kiss the bald spot in question, declaring, That'll make the hair grow. Trina took an infinite enjoyment in playing with McTeague's great square-cut head, rumpling his hair till it stood on end, putting her fingers in his eyes, or stretching his ears out straight, and watching the effect with her head on one side. It was like a little child playing with some gigantic, good-natured St. Bernard. One particular amusement they never wearied of. The two would lean across the table towards each other, McTeague folding his arms under his breast, then Trina, resting on her elbows, would part his mustache, the great blonde mustache of a Viking, with her two hands, pushing it up from his lips, causing his face to assume the appearance of a Greek mask. She would curl it around either forefinger, drawing it to a fine end. Then all at once McTeague would make a fearful snorting noise through his nose. Invariably, though she was expecting this, though it was part of the game, Trina would jump with a stifled shriek. McTeague would bellow with laughter till his eyes watered. Then they would recommence upon the instant, Trina protesting with a nervous tremulousness. Now, 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 Mac, don't you scare me so. But these delicious teates with Trina were offset by a certain coolness that Marcus Schuller began to affect towards the dentist. At first, McTeague was unaware of it, but by this time even his slow wits began to perceive that his best friend, his pal, was not the same to him as formerly. They continued to meet at lunch nearly every day but Friday at the car conductor's coffee joint. But Marcus was sulky. There could be no doubt about that. He avoided talking to McTeague, read the paper continually, answering the dentist's timid efforts at conversation in gruff monosyllables. Sometimes, even, he turned sideways to the table and talked at great length to Heise the harness-maker, whose table was next to theirs. They took no more long walks together when Marcus went out to exercise the dogs, nor did Marcus ever again recur to his generosity in renouncing Trina. One Tuesday, as McTeague took his place at the table in the coffee joint, he found Marcus already there. "'Hello, Mark,' said the dentist. "'You here already?' "'Hello,' returned the other, indifferently." helping himself to tomato ketchup there was a silence after a long while marcus suddenly looked up say mac he exclaimed when you going to pay me that money you owe me mcteague was astonished huh what i don't do i owe you any money mark well you owe me four bits returned marcus doggedly i paid for you and trina that day at the picnic and you never gave it back oh oh answered mcteague in distress that's so, that's so. I, you ought to have told me before. Here's your money, and I'm obliged to you. It ain't much, observed Marcus, sullenly. But I need all I can get nowadays. Are you, are you broke? inquired McTeague. And I ain't saying anything about your sleeping at the hospital that night either, muttered Marcus, as he pocketed the coin. Well, well, do you mean, should I have paid for that? Well, you'd have had to sleep somewheres, wouldn't you? flashed out Marcus. You'd have had to pay half a dollar for a bed at the flat. All right, all right, cried the dentist hastily, feeling in his pockets. I don't want you should be out anything on my account, old man. Here, will four bits do? I don't want your damn money, shouted Marcus in a sudden rage, throwing back the coin. I ain't no beggar. 
McTeague was miserable. How had he offended his pal? Well, I want you should take it, Mark, he said, pushing it towards him. I tell you I won't touch your money, exclaimed the other through his clenched teeth, white with passion. I've been played for a sucker long enough. What's the matter with you lately, Mark? remonstrated McTeague. You've got a grouch about something. Is there anything I've done? Well, that's all right, that's all right, returned Marcus as he rose from the table. That's all right. I've been played for a sucker long enough, that's all. I've been played for a sucker long enough. He went away with a parting, malevolent glance. At the corner of Polk Street, between the flat and the car conductor's coffee joint, was Frenna's. It was a corner grocery. Advertisements for cheap butter and eggs, painted in green marking ink upon wrapping paper, stood about on the sidewalk outside. The doorway was decorated with a huge Milwaukee beer sign. Back of the store proper was a bar where white sand covered the floor. A few tables and chairs were scattered here and there. The walls were hung with gorgeously colored tobacco advertisements and colored lithographs of trotting horses. On the wall behind the bar was a model of a full-rigged ship enclosed in a bottle. It was at this place that the dentist used to leave his pitcher to be filled on Sunday afternoons. Since his engagement to Trina, he had discontinued this habit. However, he still dropped into Frenna's one or two nights in the week. He spent a pleasant hour there, smoking his huge porcelain pipe and drinking his beer. He never joined any of the groups of paquette players around the tables. In fact, he hardly spoke to anyone but the bartender and Marcus. For Frenna's was one of Marcus Scholler's haunts. A great deal of his time was spent there. He involved himself in fearful political and social discussions with Heis the harness maker and with one or two old German habitues of the place. These discussions Marcus carried on, as was his custom, at the top of his voice, gesticulating fiercely, banging the table with his fists, brandishing the plates and glasses, exciting himself with his own clamor. On a certain Saturday evening, a few days after the scene at the coffee joint, the dentist bethought him to spend a quiet evening at Frenna's. He had not been there for some time, and besides that it occurred to him that the day was his birthday. He would permit himself an extra pipe and a few glasses of beer. When McTeague entered Frenna's back room by the street door, he found Marcus and Heise already installed at one of the tables. Two or three of the old Germans sat opposite them, gulping their beer from time to time. Heise was smoking a cigar, but Marcus had before him his fourth whiskey cocktail. At the moment of McTeague's entrance, Marcus had the floor. "'It can't be proven,' he was yelling. "'I defy any sane politician whose eyes are not blinded by party prejudices, whose opinions are not warped by a personal bias, to substantiate such a statement. Look at your facts. Look at your figures. I am a free American citizen, ain't I? I pay my taxes to support a good government, don't I?' It's a contract between me and the government, ain't it? Well then, by damn, if the authorities do not or will not afford me protection for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then my obligations are at an end. I withhold my taxes. I do, I do, I say I do. What? He glared about him, seeking opposition. That's nonsense, observed Heise, quietly. Try it once. You'll get jugged. But this observation of the harness-makers roused Marcus to the last pitch of frenzy. "'Yes, ah, yes,' he shouted, rising to his feet, shaking his finger in the other's face. "'Yes, I'd go to jail, but because I—I I am crushed by a tyranny. Does that make the tyranny right? Does might make right?' "'You must make less noise in here, Mr. Scholler,' said Frenna, from behind the bar. "'Well, it makes me mad,' answered Marcus, subsiding into a growl and resuming his chair. "'Hello, Mac. Hello, Mark. 
but McTeague's presence made Marcus uneasy, rousing in him at once a sense of wrong. He twisted to and fro in his chair, shrugging first one shoulder and then another. Quarrelsome at all times, the heat of the previous discussion had awakened within him all his natural combativeness. Besides this, he was drinking his fourth cocktail. McTeague began filling his big porcelain pipe. He lit it, blew a great cloud of smoke into the room, and settled himself comfortably in his chair. The smoke of his cheap tobacco drifted into the faces of the group at the adjoining table, and Marcus strangled and coughed. Instantly, his eyes flamed. "'Say, for God's sake,' he vociferated, "'choke off on that pipe. "'If you've got to smoke rope like that, "'smoke it in a crowd of muckers. "'Don't come here amongst gentlemen.' "'Shut up, Scholler,' observed Heiss in a low voice. "'McTeague was stunned by the suddenness of the attack. "'He took his pipe from his mouth "'and stared blankly at Marcus. "'His lips moved, but he said no word. "'Marcus turned his back on him, "'and the dentist resumed his pipe.' But Marcus was far from being appeased. McTeague could not hear the talk that followed between him and the harness-maker, but it seemed to him that Marcus was telling Heis of some injury, some grievance, and that the latter was trying to pacify him. All at once their talk grew louder. Heis laid a retaining hand upon his companion's coat-sleeve, but Marcus swung himself around in his chair and, fixing his eyes on McTeague, cried as if in answer to some protestation on the part of Heis. All I know is that I've been soldiered out of five thousand dollars. McTeague gaped at him, bewildered. He removed his pipe from his mouth a second time, and stared at Marcus with eyes full of trouble and perplexity. If I had my rights, cried Marcus, bitterly, I'd have part of that money. It's my due. It's only justice. The dentists still kept silence. If it hadn't been for me, Marcus continued, addressing himself directly to McTeague, you wouldn't have a cent of it. No, not a cent. Where's my share, I'd like to know? Where do I come in? No, I ain't in it any more. I've been played for a sucker, and now that you've got all you can out of me, now that you've done me out of my girl and out of my money, you give me the go-by. Why, where would you have been today if it hadn't been for me? Marcus shouted in a sudden exasperation. You'd have been plugging teeth at two bits an hour. Ain't you got any gratitude? Ain't you got any sense of decency? "'Ah, hold up, Scholler,' grumbled Heise. "'You don't want to get into a row.' "'No, I don't, Heise,' returned Marcus, with a plaintive, aggrieved air. "'But it's too much sometimes when you think of it. "'He stole away my girl's affections, "'and now that he's rich and prosperous "'and has got five thousand dollars that I might have had, "'he gives me the go-by. "'He's played me for a sucker. "'Look here,' he cried, turning again to McTeague. "'Do I get any of that money?' "'It ain't mine to give,' answered McTeague. "'You're drunk, that's what you are.' "'Do I get any of that money?' cried Marcus, persistently. The dentist shook his head. "'No, you don't get any of it.' "'Now, now,' clamored the other, turning to the harness-maker, as though this explained everything. "'Look at that, look at that. "'Well, I've done with you from now on.' Marcus had risen to his feet by this time and made as if to leave, but at every instant he came back, shouting his phrases into McTeague's face— moving off again as he spoke the last words, in order to give them better effect. "'This settles it right here. I've done with you. Don't you ever dare speak to me again!' His voice was shaking with fury. "'And don't you sit at my table in the restaurant again. I'm sorry I ever lowered myself to keep company with such dirt. Ah, one-horse dentist! Ah, ten-cent zinc-plugger hoodlum mucker! Get your damn smoke out of my face!' 
then matters reached a sudden climax. In his agitation, the dentist had been pulling hard on his pipe, and as Marcus for the last time thrust his face close to his own, McTeague, in opening his lips to reply, blew a stifling, acrid cloud directly in Marcus Schuller's eyes. Marcus knocked the pipe from his fingers with a sudden flash of his hand. It spun across the room and broke into a dozen fragments in a far corner. McTeague rose to his feet, his eyes wide. But as yet he was not angry, only surprised, taken all aback by the suddenness of Marcus Schuller's outbreak as well as by its unreasonableness. Why had Marcus broken his pipe? What did it all mean, anyway? As he rose, the dentist made a vague motion with his right hand. Did Marcus misinterpret it as a gesture of menace? He sprang back as though avoiding a blow. All at once there was a cry. Marcus had made a quick, peculiar motion, swinging his arm upward with a wide and sweeping gesture. His jackknife lay open in his palm. It shot forward as he flung it, glinted sharply by McTeague's head, and struck quivering into the wall behind. A sudden chill ran through the room. The others stood transfixed, as at the swift passage of some cold and deadly wind. Death had stooped there for an instant, had stooped and passed, leaving a trail of terror and confusion. Then the door leading to the street slammed. Marcus had disappeared. Thereon a great babble of exclamation arose. The tension of that all but fatal instant snapped, and speech became once more possible. He would have knifed you. Narrow escape. What kind of a man do you call that? Taint is faulty, ain't a murderer. I'd have him up for it. And they two have been the greatest kind of friends. He didn't touch you, did he? No, no, no. What a, what a devil, what treachery, a regular greaser trick. Look out, he don't stab you in the back. If that's the kind of man he is, you never can tell. Frenna drew the knife from the wall. Guess I'll keep this toad stabber, he observed. That fellow won't come round for it in a hurry. "'Good-sized blade, too.' The group examined it with intense interest. "'Big enough to let the life out of any man,' observed Heise. "'What... what... what did he do it for?' stammered McTeague. "'I got no quarrel with him.' He was puzzled and harassed by the strangeness of it all. Marcus would have killed him, had thrown his knife at him in the true uncanny greaser style. It was inexplicable. McTeague sat down again, looking stupidly about on the floor, in a corner of the room his eye encountered his broken pipe a dozen little fragments of painted porcelain and the stem of cherry wood and amber at that sight his tardy wrath ever lagging behind the original affront suddenly blazed up instantly his huge jaws clicked together he can't make small of me he exclaimed suddenly i'll show marcus Scholler. i'll show him i'll he got up and clapped on his hat now, doctor, remonstrated Heise, standing between him and the door, don't make a fool of yourself. Let him alone, joined in Frenna, catching the dentist by the arm. He's full, anyhow. He broke my pipe, answered McTeague. It was this that had roused him. The thrown knife, the attempt on his life, was beyond his solution. But the breaking of his pipe he understood clearly enough. I'll show him, he exclaimed. As though they had been little children, McTeague set Frenna and the harness-maker aside, and strode out at the door like a raging elephant. High stood, rubbing his shoulder. "'Might as well try to stop a locomotive,' he muttered. "'The man's made of iron.' Meanwhile, McTeague went storming up the streets toward the flat, whacking his head and grumbling to himself. "'Ah, Marcus would break his pipe, would he? Ah, he was a zinc-plugger, was he? He'd show Marcus Schuller. No one should make small of him.' He tramped up the stairs to Marcus's room. 
The door was locked. The dentist put one enormous hand on the knob and pushed the door in, snapping the woodwork, tearing off the lock. Nobody. The room was dark and empty. Never mind. Marcus would have to come home sometime that night. McTeague would go down and wait for him in his parlors. He was bound to hear him as he came up the stairs. As McTeague reached his room, he stumbled over, in the darkness, a big packing box that stood in the hallway just outside his door. Puzzled, he stepped over it, and lighting the gas in his room, dragged it inside and examined it. It was addressed to him. What could it mean? He was expecting nothing. Never since he had first furnished his room had packing cases been left for him in this fashion. No mistake was possible. There were his name and address unmistakably. Dr. McTeague, dentist, Polk Street, San Francisco, California, and the red Wells Fargo tag. Seized with the joyful curiosity of an overgrown boy, he pried off the boards with the corner of his fire shovel. The case was stuffed full of excelsior. On the top lay an envelope addressed to him in Trina's handwriting. He opened it and read, For my dear Mac's birthday, from Trina. And below, in a kind of postscript, the man will be round tomorrow to put it in place. McTeague tore away the excelsior. Suddenly he uttered an exclamation. It was the tooth, the famous golden molar with its huge prongs, his sign, his ambition, the one unrealized dream of his life. And it was French gilt, too, not the cheap German gilt that was no good. Ah, what a dear little woman was this Trina, to keep so quiet, to remember his birthday. Ain't she, ain't she just a, just a jewel, exclaimed McTeague under his breath. A jewel, yes, just a jewel, that's the word. Very carefully he removed the rest of the excelsior, and lifting the ponderous tooth from its box, set it upon the marble-top center table. How immense it looked in that little room! The thing was tremendous, overpowering, the tooth of a gigantic fossil, golden and dazzling. Beside it everything seemed dwarfed. Even McTeague himself, big-boned and enormous as he was, shrank and dwindled in the presence of the monster. As for an instant he bore it in his hands, it was like a puny gulliver struggling with the molar of some vast brobdingnag. The dentist circled about that golden wonder, gasping with delight and stupefaction, touching it gingerly with his hands as if it were something sacred. At every moment his thought returned to Trina. No, never was there such a little woman as his. The very thing he wanted. How had she remembered? And the money, where had that come from? No one knew better than he how expensive were these signs. Not another dentist on Polk Street could afford one. Where, then, had Trina found the money? It came out of her five thousand dollars, no doubt. But what a wonderful, beautiful tooth it was, to be sure, bright as a mirror, shining there in its coat of French gilt, as if with a light of its own. No danger of that tooth turning black with the weather, as did the cheap German gilt impostures. What would that other dentist, that poser, that rider of bicycles, that courser of greyhounds say when he should see this marvelous molar run out from McTeague's bay window like a flag of defiance? No doubt he would suffer veritable convulsions of envy, would be positively sick with jealousy, if McTeague could only see his face at the moment. For a whole hour the dentist sat there in his little parlor, gazing ecstatically at his treasure, dazzled, supremely content. The whole room took on a different aspect because of it. The stone pug-dog before the little stove reflected it in his protruding eyes. The canary woke and chittered feebly at this new guilt, so much brighter than the bars of its little prison. Lorenzo de' Medici, in the steel engraving, sitting in the heart of his court, seemed to ogle the thing out of the corner of one eye, while the brilliant colors of the unused rifle manufacturer's calendar seemed to fade and pale in the brilliance of this greater glory. 
At length, long after midnight, the dentist started to go to bed, undressing himself with his eyes still fixed on the great tooth. All at once he heard Marcus Scholler's foot on the stairs. He started up with his fists clenched, but immediately dropped back upon the bed lounge with a gesture of indifference. He was in no truculent state of mind now. He could not reinstate himself in that mood of wrath wherein he had left the corner grocery. The tooth had changed all that. What was Marcus Scholler's hatred to him, who had Trina's affection? What did he care about a broken pipe now that he had the tooth? Let him go. As Frenna said, he was not worth it. He heard Marcus come out into the hall, shouting aggrievedly to anyone within sound of his voice. And now he breaks into my room, into my room by damn. How do I know how many things he's stolen? It's come to stealing from me now, has it? He went into his room, banging his splintered door. McTeague looked upward at the ceiling, in the direction of the voice, muttering, Ah, go to bed, you. He went to bed himself, turning out the gas, but leaving the window curtains up so that he could see the tooth the last thing before he went to sleep and the first thing as he arose in the morning. But he was restless during the night. Every now and then he was awakened by noises to which he had long since become accustomed. Now it was the cackling of the geese in the deserted market across the street. Now it was the stoppage of the cable, the sudden silence coming almost like a shock. And now it was the infuriated barking of the dogs in the backyard. Alec, the Irish setter, and the collie that belonged to the branch post office raging at each other through the fence, snarling their endless hatred into each other's faces. As often as he woke, McTeague turned and looked for the tooth, with a sudden suspicion that he had only that moment dreamed the whole business. But he always found it, Trina's gift, his birthday from his little woman, a huge, vague bulk looming there through the half-darkness in the center of the room, shining dimly out as if with some mysterious light of its own. End of chapter 8